In this podcast, I'm sharing my passion and curiosity for soft robotics, where we share inspiring stories about the work we do and how we can push the limit. I am Mara Dweeney, and this is Soft Robotics Podcast. Support for this show comes from Science Robotics Journal. I really find Science Robotics to be a great resource for reliable and tangible research where we can really push the limit of the science we do in robotics. Great way to stay up to date with the published article is checking out the released monthly issue. All the links will be included in each episode description. We will also happen to have a regular conversation on the most published science robotic articles, where also you can contribute with your question and thoughts about the research. Thanks Science Robotics for sponsoring Soft Robotics Podcast. So maybe I would like to ask you first, I would like to define who you are. Okay. I'm Brad Nelson. I'm the professor of robotics and intelligent systems at ETH Zurich, also known as the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology here in Zurich on a nice snowy day. Um, and uh, I've been here about 19 years. Uh, so I've, uh, and I uh, direct the multi-scale robotics lab here. So I'm curious about your work since you work in the micro robotics scale. And I'm really obsessed with how Nietzsche already figured out the solution. And when I see your talks talk about how the old solution already exists when we try to come up with engineering or solution. I'm curious to ask you in this journey, what kind of maybe listen still you can't really understand in this scale, how they work, something still fascinating besides, of course, your work, we'll dive in that. But what could be the major lessons or something still you can't understand about how Nietzsche already figured out these designs? Well, uh, you know, evolution is the most powerful force <laughs> that I know of. Uh, uh, and, you know, it, uh, it comes from, um, you know, things that, uh, ch- you know, I mean, the, the Darwinian uh, uh, evolution, I guess, you know, they, they uh, 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 there's a lot of ways, ways to look at it, but I mean, basically it's uh, things that work, survive, things that work and procreate, uh, continue and, and survive. And uh, uh, if you uh, evolve or, you know, develop some advantage, then that, uh, that gets reinforced. And at the micro scale with microorganisms, what's particularly interesting to me is how uh, microorganisms have evolved locomotion strategies. They've evolved ways of moving um, that are uh, very foreign to my intuition because at small scales, the physics that predominates different. But, um, um, but what's, what's, what's particularly interesting to me is just, you know, the, the, big, the big motivator is to get away from fixed law, uh, uh, the, the constraints of diffusion. And uh, uh, so if you can move, then you can uh, avoid bad things. You can go towards good things. So you don't have to wait around for hours. Uh, and hours and hours just to, to move a centimeter or so. And, um, uh, you know, so there's some really basic physics that, that has driven, uh, driven a lot of the things that I find interesting at the micro scale, particularly in terms of locomotion. Um, but it's all about, uh, you know, um, it's not survival of the fittest, uh, but, you know, but, you know these, these kinds of uh, ideas that uh, uh, things that work, uh, work better uh, tend, to, tend to stick around longer, right? So I think the design is very interesting, how the design process go. But I'm curious to ask you the integration of the material part and structure. I and mean, when you show the example, this kind of bacteria inside the robots, for example, or bacteria itself, 
they don't have neurons and still exhibit intelligence through the movement. So if you can break down how was this kind of, I don't know, the integration or how the, this kind of morphology and structure can work together even without having brain. What can be beautiful here about the structure? So maybe something, if you can tell us, yeah, the scale, how you come up with this structure, maybe an evolution in the lab, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, you know, bacteria are, are fascinating. I think uh, uh, Howard Berg calls them nature's microrobot. Um, uh, you know, and, and yeah, like you're right, there's not a single neuron in there. Um, but you, when you, you study them, you realize that the, the kinds of behavior they exhibit, you, it looks uh, to be intelligent in some way. And I, of course, how you define that, how to define intelligence is, uh, is a, a big question. But, uh, but if you look at uh, the membrane of a bacteria, it has chemoreceptors on there. Um, it, it can sense the presence of particularly uh, uh, various chemicals, a, a lot of times are amino acids. Uh, and that then, um, uh, when there's a sufficient signal that, that uh, from those, then that will have an influence in the cytoplasm inside. inside. And then there are uh, uh, pathways uh, just through, through the, uh, the cytoplasm of the bacteria that, that has a, a small effect on the, on the motors. Uh, these are for flagellated bacteria like E. coli. And, um, uh, and, and so it's got sensors on the membrane. It's got the actuator on the, on the um, one end or, or several of them, sometimes has several flagella. Um, and, and those, uh, those um, rotary motors, those 45 nanometer motors, uh, um, are affected by what the chemoreceptors are sensing. And if uh, they sense something good, the motors tend to run a little bit longer than they would normally before they uh, kind of reverse and it goes into a random tumbling. So, uh, you know, that, that's a, when you, when you look, study that uh, control mechanism, uh, I, I think it's fascinating because it's something I would never intuit. Um, it, it's completely not my intuition that, oh, sensor's good, L just let the motor run a little bit longer before it starts to go into a random phase again. Um, but it makes a lot of sense when you, when you start to do the physics, when you start to look at diffusion, how long it takes molecules to diffuse, for instance, a micron versus a centimeter. Uh, so, so uh, you know, that, that kind of behavior where it can actually uh, uh, go towards uh, sources of, of, of food, kind of a plume-following uh, uh, strategy, which larger robots people have developed. But when, when, when it is able to, to go towards that, I think that's, that, that shows some intelligence. The other thing is interesting that inside of the, the cytoplasm are these little plasmids floating around, these chunks of DNA floating around, and that's basically the software. That's uh, uh, coding, coding the, of course, the proteins that the, uh, the bacteria, the microorganism needs to, uh, to function and, uh, and later to divide. And, and so I think it's, uh, uh, you know, so, so, like you said, like you, you can look at also a paramecium, you know, with all these cilia on them that uh, uh, move in these kind of metachronal wave patterns that c cause it to move towards, uh, uh, again, towards a source of food or some something it needs, some kind of chemical it needs. Uh, and, you know, these things have, have various ways of, of sensing their environments and then making sure they're moving to places where life's getting better. I like when you said about the intuition, they come up with the design, maybe not aligned with how you envisioned should be. So how do you see the design itself, the structure? 
these things sometimes you have to, if we don't look to how the, the example they mentioned, the bacteria or the motors here, this scale, there's any kind of designs you come up with based on your intuition, not exactly maybe listen or maybe inspiration from evolution. I don't know if you have come up with design based on your intuition without using, like, look into evolution. Any moments, like, use intuition only. Well, um, so how do you do design? I mean, I, you know, uh, uh, you know, that's the first thing, I guess. I, I, I'm an engineer. This is what, this is what you do, right? You, uh, you, you look, look around the world. You see what other people have designed. You iterate off of that. Um, if you haven't, you don't know where to start. You, you look at nature and see how's nature solved some of these problems. Uh, what can I learn? What's interesting to me is then t to dig deeper into the physics of why, uh, why particular uh, uh, designs that have evolved um, work. Uh, in, you know, and, and sometimes it's not clear uh, why those things happen. So I, I think, um, um, but, but one of the advantages we have that nature doesn't have is we don't have to, um, you know, when you, when through evolution you you have to you you iterate off of where you are. We don't have to iterate. We can bring in whole new ideas from outside, and that's one of the things we do with magnetics, where we can generate complicated magnetic fields and magnetic field gradients to create interesting motions that, that simply aren't going to evolve in nature because uh, um, they don't. You know, the fields are, are weak, and there's just a few examples of microorganisms that actually use. Uh, uh, magnetic fields uh, in, in, in interesting ways. But, uh, well, and, and we're starting to learn more and more about animals and every, uh, it seems like every year there's a new paper, a new understanding of how the, uh, 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 organisms are sensing magnetic fields and so the birds can migrate properly and things like that. So. And through these years, I don't know if you have maybe any question you think is still not really answered or maybe Hard question, especially in soft robotics field. Since you work in microbotics, soft microbotics, do you think maybe there's a hard question or challenging question? Maybe still not a still challenging right. question nobody's been able to solve. Or maybe not ask it, maybe. Well, I mean, I think one of the most interesting questions I posed to my group for years, and I still haven't figured it out, is uh, how can we make devices that actually grow? Um, I don't mean expand um, like, you know, like a balloon, but I mean grow where they actually take material from their environment um, and add to themselves and, and create structures that um, um, can move. I, we, we, I work with a, a molecular biologist who's, who studies plants. One of the things we work on are pollen tubes. These, you take like a, a, a grain of pollen from, for instance, a lily. A, a, and under the right conditions, then a pollen tube starts growing out of that, and it grows at several microns a minute. Uh, it's like the fastest growing cell in the world, my friend uh, Uli Grosnikos I work with uh, says, uh, and uh, I believe him. I don't know of anything faster. Um, but somehow that pollen tube is is growing. It's The tip is dissolving and reforming, and it's moving, and it's moving. It's What it's looking for is a female part of the plant, so then it can... Uh, release the the DNA it's carrying inside of it uh, to fertilize the uh, to fertilize the plant or the seed to create a uh, you know the, the seeds for the the next generation and I you know and I, I I've, we've thought a long time about how we might make something grow um, and I 
still don't feel like we have a good solution yet. So uh, I would like to see, and, and I, there are some other folks out there working, thinking about it. A lot of it is based on crystals, crystallization processes, and things like that, which are interesting, but not quite what I have in mind, but still. Um, yeah, I'm curious to ask you on the growing part. Do you think it's about material features, functionality, or structures? Can you break it down more realistically? Yeah, well, I think it's complicated. I mean, you look, we don't really understand a lot of the, a lot of the details of how this, uh, uh, the, uh, just going back to the pollen tube, how, do the, how does that thing, uh, what, what's going on with the structure? Uh, we can sense some of the mechanics, and we know at the tip it's softer, and somehow it can be, uh, you know, it's somehow dissolving and reforming with, with material that's in, inside the, the, the cytoplasm of the cell. Um, but it's complicated, and there's many steps to it. It's not like, uh, oh, uh, you know, you're just building a brick wall, and you put this and this. There's, there's, there's several intermediate steps that have to be going on in that, and I think uh, uh, the complexity is uh, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's... I think, I don't know if you, you imply about self-replication in that case also, it, it, uh, like, besides growing... Well, yeah, I mean, so that's another thing. People, we'd like to, you know, build self self replicating robots. I don't know, maybe maybe we uh, uh, get into a Fantasia problem, but uh, uh, but um, uh, but self rep, yeah, devices devices that can self replicate. But that's, uh, I think, growing is a maybe a little bit easier problem to start with. Uh, so that's that's that was the challenge that we we talk about every 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 so often. I, I, we, we, we talk about that, and we try to think if, if there's some new ideas that we might uh, bring to bear on it. But, uh, yeah, so we, we, we haven't abandoned it, but it's, it's, it's a problem that we're, um, we haven't figured out. And then, and then self-replication is something that um, yeah, I haven't, uh, you know, I think we, we've all got fix, uh, fixated now on 3D printing and, and uh, things like that, which uh, give us some, some interesting possibilities mm -hmm. there, I think. How you can, in, in the design process, because I think, the way you approach design sometimes there's a positive uh, features like get rid of nonlinearities, for example. And in some episodes we speak about how nonlinearities could be advantageous or some features or functionalities, maybe features, not positive. Like we have to get rid of that saying, but it turns out to be very interesting. I mean, so, you know, I'm, a, I'm a, at a university, at a, at a research institute. Uh, so we think of kind of far out problems maybe that don't have immediate uh, practical value, right? Uh, they're they're going to, how do, how do you make a micro robot? I mean, that's what we started thinking about in 2003. We was like, how could I make a small intelligent machine uh, that do, does something interesting? Um, and, um, you know, I was under no illusions that it was going to be easy to do it, but I knew, but, you know, the thing that I was, I knew is as we tried to design it and as we looked at ways we can power it, ways we fabricate it, that a lot of other interesting things are going to come out of the problem, right? And, and um, you know, I think, um, um, so I'm not sure if this is what you're getting at or not, but like, you know, making a micro-robot move. So, you know, when it, we first started thinking about it, we thought, well, what, how, how would we do that? Well, we, we thought about a lot of different things, but we realized, you know, using magnetic fields and magnetic field gradients and having a small p uh, magnetic material then in our robot would, uh, was, made a lot of sense for a lot of reasons. Uh, biocompatibility, we know what, that magnetic fields are generally safe for the human body. They are relatively long uh, distance forces, uh, strong forces, uh, 
so we, we, we selected that problem and went down that path in uh, uh, very, very, very strongly. But along the way, we learned a lot. We've learned a lot, and we still have a lot more to learn about how to generate fields and field gradients. And we also realized there were some other applications that were pretty interesting. For instance, instead of guiding microrobots, well, we could guide small magnetic uh, uh, catheters uh, and endoscopes that have magnetic tips. And, um, you know, and so that came out of it. I didn't, I didn't start that, didn't start thinking, uh, oh, I want to make magnetically guided catheters. I thought, I want to I solve a big problem. I want to solve a, uh, how to make a microrobot move. But I realized things come out of that, right? And we, we get... Uh, um, um, you know, interesting uh, uh, designs for, for things we didn't, we didn't really consider and think about. And so that's sent us down this path of, um, of um, it's companies that have spun out, uh, patents that we've created that we never thought of in the beginning. A, a good, another good example, when I first started thinking about micro, microrobotics, when I was in 1995, when I built my first lab as an assistant professor, and we were looking at microassembly and micromanipulation, not making small intelligent devices, but just doing basically robotics under microscopes with big, big things. And, and I remember um, in 1998, I saw, uh, I think it was, uh, oh gosh, a Japanese uh, researcher, um, Ah, I can't think of his name. Um, but uh, he had made these little chopsticks, and he, he he's kind of, uh, you know, with piezo actuator, really interesting. And he showed a biological cell uh, that he could actually pick up a, an individual uh, uh, cell. And, and I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. I think I want to try to understand how we can, you know, manipulate individual cells. Um, so we started looking, and I, well, one of the first things I want to do is I want to know what, what kind of forces I'm exerting, so I don't, you know, um, damage the cell. I want to, you know, understand that. So we, so I tried to, you know, went uh, went online, looked all over for force sensors that we could use to measure forces, and and couldn't find anything, nothing on the market that was uh, interesting. There was one company that made a cantilever that. But it was wasn't really usable. So we decided um, in 1998 we're going to build our own force sensor to measure force at those scales, just simply so we can handle cells. We weren't sure what we were doing. We were looking at um, making transgenic uh, or, uh, organisms, so we would inject DNA into oocytes, uh, into the uh, nucleus of an oocyte, and but we needed to know the forces on that. So we spent four years trying to figure out. This is with Yu Sun, who's at uh, the University of Toronto. Uh, when he was a PhD student with me, he spent four years trying to figure out how to build this force sensor. Um, and then in that time, I, I moved from Illinois to Minnesota, then then uh, to, to ETH here in Switzerland. And uh, what happened was, uh, as we were getting this force sensor and then really working, and every time I would uh, give a talk or I'd show us using it, somebody would come up to me and say, oh, can we get some of those force, you know, can we... Do you, do you sell them? Do we have those? And uh, you know, can I can I use them? And I'm like, well, we don't. But I I had a couple students here that, at ETH, and they wanted to, they were interested in the company. I says, well, I know there's a market because people keep asking if they can buy it. I don't know how big it is. Um, but you know, there's an example. That's a company that was founded in 2007 called Femto Tools. Um, it's got about 25 employees now, um, and it's still based on that. Uh, you know, the fundamental uh, component is is that that force sensor that we 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 made because we wanted to sense uh, individual forces on cells. Now, that's not their, 
their market. That's not where they're, uh, they're selling all their devices. They're into nano indentation these days. That's where their real, uh, real strength is and, and whole systems for that. But they still, it's still that, that four sensor which we went, we, we, we designed for a completely different um, application and then all of a sudden we found, hey, you know, um, there's actually a, you know, there's a gap in the market and there's a need. And so it's, uh, uh, it's, it's filling that need and they've, uh, companies, uh, they've done a good job in, in marketing, getting it out there. So, so design's interesting. I think as, as researchers, uh, as engineering researchers, we pick interesting problems without you know, a real clear initial uh, um, market pull or, or, or what it's going to be. We just find them challenging problems. And then along the way, um, as you do all the design to try to, to solve parts of that, then you, you, all, you see things that uh, you see applications and you realize things you didn't know. And I think that's one of the challenges of building a, a research group is trying to strategize and choose good problems. Um, and I think, uh, you know, as a professor, that's one of my main tasks here is to make sure we're working on good problems so we have a strategy, so. And I'm just ask you, when you go to the small scale, the exhibiting intelligence at smaller scale, maybe what's the challenging here? You already mentioned that many times, but the challenge of scaling down and having this intelligent behavior, should you count more in the structure or the material because you're already using biocompatible polymers, but oh, I don't know what kind of maybe component is so significant in the design, the structure and the scale, what's really significant to you? Well, I, I think um, one of the, as soon as I started working in microrobotics uh, and started thinking about how to make small things, I realized uh, the importance of materials. <laughs> um, and, you know, I spent a lot of time when I first started back in 95, started going down this path. I spent a lot of time learning how to mic do microfabrication, how to make MEMS. I went and um, did workshops and courses on how to make small things. Um, I was never that, uh, as, as, a, as a bachelor, master, PhD student, I was never that really that interested in materials and chemistry. I, I, I liked more the physics side, the more physics and math and, and less chemistry materials. But I realized as I worked in this area that materials were, were absolutely key uh, and we needed to go, go deep, go much deeper on, on the material side because you need, you know, you want, if you're going to make something move with magnets, you need good magnetic properties. If you want to do it in uh, the body, it needs to be biocompatible, preferably biodegradable. Um, so it, uh, you know, if you lose it, it's not going to hurt anybody. It's just going to kind of disappear after a while. Um, you know, you, if you're going to put it in the body, you want to maybe see it. So you got to put some kind of a contrast agent on it so that you can see it with x-rays or with ultrasound or something like that. Uh, but trying to bring all these material properties together are, is, is a, is a huge challenge. Um, um, I was lucky when I moved to, uh, to Switzerland, um, there was, a. uh, a guy in Barcelona who had read some of our papers we published at Minnesota on magnetic uh, electroplating with composite materials, and and he all of a sudden discovered I was here, and so he's a PhD student. He says, oh, "I'd like to come and uh, spend some time." So he got some funding and came up and and did a lot of his PhD here. Is a guy by the name of Salvador Pani, um, and then um, we. Uh, and then he, he said, I'd like to come back for a postdoc. And so he found some money and, and was to support himself and came back here. And uh, 
Uh, he's been here uh, a long time now. He's a professor uh, just right down the hall from me. And uh, he's a chemist, a physical chemist. His specialty is uh, electrochemistry, electroplating particularly. Um, and so that was quite a, you know, a nice combination because now I've got a you know, person really trained in materials and chemistry that I can work, you know, we work directly and then I, I can do the focus on more of the robotics, physics, uh, control side that, uh, that I enjoy. And so I think, you know, um, as you go small scale, micro and nano, it's, it's materials. Um, and then, uh, um, you know, when you look at the applications, then we start getting into more biology, we get into medicine. And uh, so then you need to, to team up with those people. But to me, there's still fundamental robotics problems. They're still about making small intelligent things. Mm -hmm. What would be me missing feature and functionality so far in the micro, soft micro robotics? You say, this is really, I can't get this, this functionality or this feature. Maybe a trade-off, you can't really avoid this kind of the design. There's something here in this still missing for you, the feature, functionality, or a trade-off you can't avoid. Well... You know, I mean, so so so, what are these things going to do? I mean, you know, the the uh, you know the first thing you think is is delivering a drug somewhere, or some kind of a targeted therapy, um, and so you know they're small. Well, uh, that means they can't carry a big payload, right? So they, you know, they. Uh, but the idea is you don't need to carry a big payload because if you're going to find the source of the disease, maybe you can just put smaller amounts of more 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 uh, powerful uh, therapeutics on it. Uh, but you also uh, the other. Uh, thing you can do is, of course, uh, create swarms of these. You can have hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, so millions of these things uh, that are all working together um, in this small little area. So, you know, so, so it's just, uh, you know, that's a challenge. Um, um, but, you know, there's other functions for these things too, uh, ablating tissue, um, um, and, and, and so then, you know, again, you come to the, the challenge, well, these are small, so how much energy can they carry? Um, how can you trans, transduce that energy, or trans, you know, uh, from other, other sources? Um, and that's one of the things with Salvador Pane that we, he's, he's quite interested in our multi-feroic materials. These are materials that can trans, uh, kind of transform uh, different types of energy. So you can, you take a material and expose it to a magnetic field and it will can create a small electric charge around it or uh, stress it, you know, maybe with ultrasound with some kind of pressure waves. And then it can also create that and, you know, light as well. So you can transform between different kinds of energy. Um, and so those are, you know, all materials issues. You always wish they were better. You wish you had, um, you know, higher saturation magnetic materials and you wish they were biodegradable. Um, but, you know, there's just some things that you just got to live with and figure out ways around. And, and so there's... Um, that, you know, that's just the challenge. But again, it comes, a lot of it comes back to materials, but a lot of it comes back to the physics as well, too, because unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know how the world would be different, but magnetic fields drop off with a cube of distance, so they do drop off rapidly, so that means you're going to need to pump a lot of energy to create uh, magnetic fields over, over distances. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Maybe I'm curious to ask you about the redundancy of that case. Do you think how you make sure, since there are... You mentioned magnetic field, for example, how it's really crucial here. But there's kind of redundancy and make sure this micro-robot is just doing the exact thing every time. I don't know if there's a scenario like emergent behavior happening. I don't know. I'm just maybe curious or maybe failure. And they can't have this kind of redundancy to achieve the goal. How do you make sure this 
Well, yeah, I mean, that's, again, coming back to swarms, where you've got a lot of things, right? And that's the way, you know, nature is. I mean, you know, not every, uh, uh, you know, insect is successful, but when you get enough of them, yeah, they, you know, <laughs> then, then together they, they keep the, the species uh, going, right? And I mean, similarly with with these these devices is you uh, you have a lot of them um, they don't all have to get there uh, and and do their job but but enough of them do and um, so I think there's some interesting ways we need you know rethink um, uh, uh, robotics it's not like we've got a our robot has to achieve its task every time but if we have a bunch of these little devices and enough of them um, are successful then that's that's hopefully good enough and so. Um, and again, you borrow lessons from nature and how nature has uh, has uh, you know, considers these problems, how they've uh, you know uh, developed uh, solutions that seem to work. Mm-hmm. And do you envision for magnetic field? Do you envision maybe in the future? I don't know other ways to empower these tiny robots. In that case, beyond magnetic field. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of so there's several different ways we could do it as well. Uh, some folks working on ultrasound, Daniel Ahmed here at uh, ETH, who was in my lab now. He's a professor here as well. Uh, he's, he's been focusing a lot on ultrasound and using these pressure waves uh, to, to energize things. Um, folks have looked at catalytic ap- approaches where chemicals, uh, some of these, you know, use like hydrogen peroxide, which is, is, is you know, an interesting research topic, but it's not going to work in the body. But then there's other, uh, you know, as in acidic environments, kind of acids uh, that where you can you get some kind of chemical uh, approach. And then and then a number of people have been looking at light sensitive uh, materials that, uh, you know, you maybe shine a little laser, a little light on it and it can gather um, um you know, they use that energy, transform it. So there's light, there's chemicals, there's ultrasound, there's magnetic fields. Uh, um, yeah, that's a, those are the, I think those are the, the main ones. I don't think I'm leaving anything big out there. Great. So since it goes to end, I maybe have a few questions for you. I don't know what you see the next thing in tough robotics. Maybe you mentioned growing in the beginning, growing robots, but what are the next thing do you think? Or maybe missing tools? Well, I, I, I mean, one of the things that's been interesting is 4D printing, I think, where, you know, we print something in 3D or 2D, and then, it, it, and then after it's printed, it changes its shape and it can morph into different, different sizes. I, I think that's an interesting uh, uh, research problem. Um, you know, I still, you know, people are trying to build nice soft motors, uh, uh, you know, um, actuators, um, you know, the, but you know, it always at the end comes down to powering these things. Um, you know, I always I always tell my students if you really want to change the field of robotics, build a better battery. Uh, uh, same thing for soft robotics. Better you know, better energy storage is going to um, help drive that field more. Um, but I, you know, I think there's just you know fundamental problems because these are you know these materials that that are being used have you know. Uh, they're soft. They they they're they're flexible, and it's they're difficult to model. It's it's much easier to model a rigid structure, obviously, and so uh, so there's still a lot of fundamental issues on um, uh, you know how do you instrument them, sense how do you deliver energy, um, and and so you know what's the, uh, you know I, I'm not sure what uh, so those to me those are fundamental issue fundamental research issues. I'm curious if there's maybe any surprising moment because you mentioned at the beginning sometimes you design something and you try to 
except in the physics behind it. And sometimes it's quite rich where you have a simple design, but it's really have an explanation for physics quite maybe complex or rich. I don't know for you that design, you came up with the design and the physics was kind of surprising or rich or, or maybe in the design itself, the behavior was surprising, both side in physics or the design. Well, you know, one of the things uh, we worked on starting probably around 2005, 2006 was on this concept of what we call an artificial bacteria flagella. Um, and, and, and the way that started was, again, going back to just micro manipulation, uh, we had, I had, uh, we'd, we'd run into a group not too far from here in Switzerland, not here at ETH, but uh, at, at the Paul Scherer Institute, one of the government labs. And they had uh, been working with a professor at, at Basel and, and had developed these helical spring-like structures uh, that were, uh, you know, with nanometer uh, thin ribbons. And, you know, we, we had this ability to manipulate things, you know, these micro-manipulators and all. And we thought, oh, this, you know, those are pretty interesting. Maybe we can get some of those and we could just, you know, do some tests on them. And so uh, there was a PhD student by the name of Li Zhang who was there at um, and so we started working with, with Lee and his, his um, uh, Gritzmacher and, and uh, some of the folks uh, there. And we realized, yeah, you know, we, we can make little machines, maybe, you know, little springs, maybe a little goniometer, some kind of a device. And then, and then uh, I'm not sure who, but somebody says, you know, they, they look, those things look, uh, they're similar in size to uh, bacteria, these helical flagella that things like E. coli, salmonella have. Um, and so we kind of got a crazy idea to say, well, can we, can we get these things to rotate and see how they would move in, in a liquid in water? And, um, um, you know, we were like, well, how do the, how do the real ba ba bacteria move? Oh, they got this rotary motor. We, so we studied that and, uh, and then, um, you know, like, okay, we're not going to be able to make the rotary motor, but, but what if we put a little bit of magnetic material on the end of it and we just rotated a field, maybe we could get it to, to start moving and spinning. So we did that. Um, and um, we gave it to a couple of master students, uh, a, a, a Swiss uh, and a Swedish student studying here, just to see, uh, you know, maybe we can do something. And, and lo and behold, they were able to get this uh, thing to actually propel its, to get, propel it in liquid, which kind of surprised us. We thought <laughs> we didn't know that it was going to work. And we so we started looking further and further into the physics of it, and we realized how lucky we had getting, gotten that we were able to move because there were a lot of things we didn't understand. And then as we studied the hydrodynamics and even the magnetization of it, uh, uh, we were lucky that we were using field, low fields. If we'd been using higher fields, it never would have worked, but we were using low uh, millitesla level fields. Uh, and so you know, we kind of got lucky to get that thing to move. And we published in 2007 at ICRA, we published uh, a paper on it. And then uh, we published in 2009 was our, an applied physics letter paper, uh, APL. And, uh, um, but we, we started looking at the hydrodynamics, the magnetics, the stability, um, all that physics, and it just got more and more fascinating. And then when you realize the story, how the story comes together, you've got, um, uh, you know, you've got the, bio, the inspiration from biology, right? Uh, and then we have magnetism, you know, uh, you know, we bring in a whole other thing from a, another area. And then we have the, the nanofabrication, the, the technology we were using at the time was based on self-scrolling, uh, self-scrolling thin films. Um, 
you know, and, and it came together in kind of a beautiful way uh, that, that was, I think, really intellectually very satisfying to see that happen. Um, and then, you know, we, we, we published, continue to publish papers now, and, and then direct laser writing became commercially available with the NanoScribe, and we were lucky to get one of those first systems and realized we could now, instead of doing all the self-scrolling uh, processes which were which used nasty um, um, non-biocompatible materials and they were difficult to work with, and all of a sudden we could make these out of polymers and do direct, direct laser writing. That opened up a whole new avenue for us. Uh, so you kind of just keep going down and, and, and you start seeing these things. And now, um, Zhaopu Wang, she's at the uh, Chinese University of Hong Kong, Shenzhen, and the uh, what, AI Robotics uh, uh, Institute there uh, in, in Shenzhen. Um, and uh, she's been working, we've been working with her a lot now as she set up her lab, moved from us, moved from here out to there on, on um, uh, materials that are biodegradable, um, that are, that we can pattern with lasers. Um, and so it's, it's quite, um, you know, it's, we just keep studying it. We keep going down there. We keep discovering new things. Uh, you know, we, Japu, we did worked on different um, surface uh, energies, different, you know, hydrophobic, hydrophilic, and trying to understand how that influenced its behavior. So there's, you know, it's, You've been thinking about this for well over a decade now. In fact, almost f probably 15 years uh, of just this one little device, but it's still interesting. There's still things uh, that we find um, uh, are worth uh, spending a little time on and um, yeah, publishing. Three questions left. The first one, I don't know if you have a moment of maybe doubt or maybe harsh failure because sometimes to open yourself for real success, sometimes we have to go through real failure. I don't know if you have moment in that. Oh, we have a lot of failures. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that's, uh, uh, you know, I have a big group here, so we got a lot of things going on, a lot of different projects. So if, if, if we, you know, if, you know, for the student, the, PA, the, the, the researcher who, who hits a brick wall on something, you know, that's not fun, but for, you know, uh, but we've always got, got new ideas and new things coming out. But I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, one thing I guess I could consider a failure is this growing stuff. I've never figured it. We haven't come up with a good solution that I find I find compelling yet, uh, and and we keep thinking about it. Um, you know, and then we've had you know we've had some we've tried to spin off uh, of some technologies that we you know hasn't uh, uh, been as successful as we thought. Um, we've ran into some roadblocks there. They weren't really research roadblocks. They were more. Um, you know, business kind of, of roadblocks, but those were probably the, the, the worst failures because they're, uh, um, you know, it's, it's clear, you know, in research, uh, if something doesn't work, well, you, you ask the question a little differently, you look, you look somewhere and you try to find something interesting um, in it. Um, so I think, uh, you know, there's, uh, so I, I, you know, research, yeah, a lot of things don't work the way we think they will, but, you know, usually there's something interesting. Um, to, to keep yeah. going on. Yeah. So I find it's really interesting that you have the both side entrepreneurship and also being in academia, but I'm curious about the moment for you make you more satisfied and fulfilled as a researcher or be as a human, what do you do? Make you satisfied and fulfilled? Well, the funnest, you know, the most fun is sitting in a, a you know, a group of people, bringing, sitting with some biologists and a chemist and, you know, and, and some engineers and you start, uh, you know, coming up with ideas and you, you know, and then, you know, they got the biologists explaining to you how these pollen tubes are working. Um, 
and then I've got uh, you know the chemists who are they have a, an insight into what's what's the real chemistry going on inside of there, and then we're trying to think of the mechanics of of the the, the shell of of the pollen tube or whatever, and you know, and I'm all the time I'm sitting there putting with my engineering hat on, thinking how can I make this? You know, how can I how can I how can I make something? Or what lessons can I learn from that? Um, and that's of course the most fun, right? Uh, that's intellectually satisfying when when these ideas come together. Uh, um, but you know, as you get l further along in your career, uh, you know, you start to realize, you know, uh, we published a lot of papers. I, you know, I put a lot of that work out there. What I'd really love to do is uh, try to make this, you know, not not just publish papers, but but actually benefit society, get this out there. Uh, and so that was the first company was Femto Tools. I mentioned the force sensor, and that you know that got out there, and we saw a need for it. Um, and then we've done some some biomedical companies. We're trying to get into the biomedical space, and that is was one of the most satisfying moments of my uh, career. Was sitting in the hospital, uh, watching uh, the electrophysiologist, the the surgeon, doing a heart procedure uh, on a on a woman suffering from a heart arrhythmia, uh, and knowing that uh, that catheter that's in her heart while she's awake in her beating heart. Uh, that whole, you know, that whole concept of how we can guide that magnetically and the whole system that she was in uh, came from, you know, the original idea was, was in, from our lab, the patents uh, we filed, um, and, then, and then being able to bring that all the way through. And I mean, that, that is unbelievably satisfying to realize that you've, you know, uh, I mean, there's a, a ton of people, you know, uh, along the way to make this happen, but to see that, you know, the, I, the original ideas came out of here and then, and then turned into a, um, a product that actually uh, can, you know, improve a person's health. Yeah, that's that's a it felt like a pretty big deal when it was going on. Um, that's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. The last question is: I don't know if you received advice with a life changing, maybe in the career or in life, and it sticks to mind always. Advice. You know, I didn't think a lot about building, you know, my career uh, when I was younger. When I was in my my twenties, I should say, you know. Uh, I just made sure whatever I, I was working on, I was excited about uh, and passionate about. And then, you know, I got in the middle of my PhD uh, and I, all of a sudden I realized, well, you know, I've got some interesting experience here. I've been able to, to do some really interesting things. So I think, um, you know, my advice, uh, and I, I, I tell this to my, to my students uh, too, is, you know, when you're, when you're thinking about what you want to do in your life uh, or, or what, you, where, what paths you want to go down and, and what, what kind of job perhaps you want to take is, first of all, do something you're excited about that you look forward to uh, getting up and, and doing every day. Now, of course, that doesn't mean it's, you know, every day's great, right? And we all have bad days, and there's all days where, oh, I don't want to go in and write this paper or give this uh, stupid talk or whatever. But, but make sure that, you know, what you're doing excites you. Um, I think that's one. Uh, um, uh, uh, the second, I think, that's important when you, you, you choose something is do something you could feel good about, right? That you feel like you're really making a contribution to society. It doesn't mean you have to be curing cancer, but it means, you know, you're doing something uh, that you're, you know, you're proud of and that you, you realize this is a contribution, so you, you, you can feel good about it. Um, you know, and then the third thing is always, you know, make sure there's, you know, opportunities to grow in what you're doing, that you're not, this isn't going to be a dead end for you. This, this is a field that's, you know, maybe going to disappear overnight or something, you know, think that. So I think, you know, having a passion for what you're doing, uh, at least excited about it in some way, um, um, 
and and uh, uh, feeling good about what you're doing, you know, having having you know being being proud of what what it is you're working on, and then uh, uh, realizing that you know looking at what what opportunities it's going to give you in the future, looking at considering those three things, you you know you can't go wrong, I think. So uh, that's, that's really valuable. I don't know if you have any final words like to say for the robotics community. Any final words like to say? Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you and um, thinking about all these these things. Um, I think uh, robotics is uh, something I accidentally fell into in 1984, long, long time ago. Uh, I didn't intend to go down the field, but it was a good uh, it was it was a good mistake. I guess I shouldn't say I call it a mistake, but a good happenstance that I ended up in it. Um, and I'm more excited about robotics than ever. And I've been in the field now for you know over 35 years. Uh, and uh, uh, I think it's, it's, it's a fun field. It's a field where you need to be a bit of a philosopher and ask yourself questions about it, the nature of intelligence and things. But it's a, also a field where you get to play with technology, uh, which is always fun. And um, I, uh, I think it's, it's, been a, it's been a great ride uh, to be in this field. And I'm um, excited to see where it's going to go in the next... Uh, next coming decades so that's uh, thanks so much Rella. i think it was very inspiring touch you or have you again in the podcast i really appreciate it thank you thank thanks you thanks a lot take care